Okay, right. So, okay. That is quite unpopular to not give an opinion. <laughs> and in the spirit of Q, that's quite meta as well. You sort yeah. of, you know. I trimmed um, my unpopular opinion. Yeah. <laughs> that's a Q joke, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't get it yet. But I'm going to learn Q and then I'm going to come back and listen. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be loving that. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at LaunchDarkly.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Get $100 in hosting credit at Linode.com slash Changelog. What's up, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by Codish, a podcast from the team at Heroku, exploring code, technology, tools, tips, and developer life. There's a ton of great episodes on the Codish podcast, so I'd encourage you to check it out and subscribe. But in particular, I want to bring to your attention the recent episode featuring Cornelia Davis, the CTO of WeWorks, talking about cloud native, cloud native patterns, and what it really means to be a cloud native application. Here's a sneak peek. Can you define GitOps? Maybe give a formal definition and, and talk about what some of the implications are? I think that the simplest formal definition actually doesn't involve the word Git at all. It is cloud native operations is the way that I think of it. Now, let me draw an, an analog there in that um, one of the things I didn't mention in my intro is that I'm also the author of a book called Cloud Native Patterns. And that book is targeted at developers, software developers and architects who are building these you know, highly distributed applications, these microservice-based applications and helping them understand all the patterns that you have to put in place to be able to make these microservices-based apps work in this ever-changing environment that they run in. All right, links are in the show notes or head to heroku.com slash podcast to listen and subscribe. Again, check the show notes for links or heroku.com slash podcasts. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record the show live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Watch along with your eyeballs at youtube.com slash changelog and participate in the live chat by joining the Go Time FM channel of Gover Slack. Okay, let's cue this one up. See what I did there. Here we go. And welcome to Go Time. Welcome to a very special Dickensian festive episode today. I'm Ebenezer Raya, and today, dear reader, Aya reader, you're going to be visited by three spirits the ghosts of configuration past, present, and configuration yet to come. Today, we're talking about Q, which is a, a new language that lets us define, validate, and generate text based data. Uh, like config files, APIs, database schemas, and even code, which sounds crazy. But don't worry, we're going to unpick it today with this expert panel. We're joined by the creator of Q, a longtime Googler, um, founded member of the Borg team, which is what inspired Kubernetes, if you didn't know. A Go team member, um, it's only Marcel von Luizen. Hello, Marcel. Hey, Dara. Not on the Go team anymore, by the way. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. That's okay. Did you get fired? Don't answer that. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're also joined by Paul Jolly. Paul created uh, PlayWithGo.dev. Um, he's a Go contributor and organizer uh, of the Golang Tools Working Group. Hi, Paul. Hi, Matt. How are you? Good, mate. Welcome back. Thank you very much indeed. You're always welcome. We're also joined by Roger Pepe, who's a current Influxer, a long-time Go contributor, and this blew my mind, Roger suggested the error type. So we're going to have to talk about that at some point. Um, the also organizer of the uh, Golang Northeast meetup since 2015. Hello, Roger. Welcome to Go Time. Hey, how's it going? Happy to be yeah, here. Yeah, not bad. Yes. Thanks for coming. It's... Um, it's an honor to have you all here, and I'm very excited about Q, um, especially because it feels to me like something that I haven't really seen before. So maybe, Marcel, you could um, give us a bit of an overview of 
what Q is and why it exists? Yeah, so uh, like 15 years ago, I, uh, as part of being on the Borg team, I created this configuration language because we needed something to control Borg. And I wanted to do something completely different originally, uh, but then we wanted to keep it simple and we created uh, GCL, which in the end grew quite complex. Um, so I did that together with Robert Griesemer, uh, by the way. So that's also a little pre-Go uh, history there. And then Rob Pike was uh, an advisor uh, on that team also. And he, he kept saying, like, you have to do composition, right? And what I originally wanted to do was this composition model. But after eliminating that already, we sort of forgot about it. And, you know, Enzo was right in our face right there, but we never, you know, never got back to it. And basically, um, you know, then GCL started having inheritance, big mistake, didn't have typing, big mistake. And so Q is now uh, a way to fix all that. Great. And what problem does it solve? Like, What's its core mission? I mean, it promises a lot, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So the original problem that I wanted to solve with it is basically a configuration, right? So if you look at... Uh, so at my previous job, uh, I worked with natural language, right? And, and basically natural language grammars. And if you think about it, these are very large configurations. So if you see in cloud, right, people that have like 100K lines, configurations or more, it's, it's a struggle, right? And it's really hard to keep, keep these. Whereas if I looked at these grammars, uh, it works fine, right? Like you had distributed teams, many people working on it, um, not a problem, right? I mean, it was daunting, but it was not a problem. And uh, essentially, if you look at it in cloud computing, it's not solved, right? Like configuration languages tend to be way too complex, right? It's, uh, and if you keep it simple, it also gets complex. You know, it's, it's always, it feels a little bit out of control, right? And this queue is designed to get control back of configuration and manage it at scale, yet keep it simple. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, I don't know, like, maybe we could just dig into some of the things it does. I mean, are there example use cases that we'll all recognize? Because, like you say, with something that's so flexible like this, that, that you could almost use it to do all kinds of things that, and I suppose you're going to get a lot of people doing things that you wouldn't even have imagined yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah, one of them is uh, testing, for example. Hmm. So I've um, uh, written one of my own first Q-based uh, table-driven tests uh, recently, and it's, uh, it's really a breeze. It's so easy to write. And actually, I think Rog was the first who pointed it out. It's, uh, it's a very good use case for Q. Uh, and there was recently a blog um, uh, from Yext who was using it also for cross-language uh, test generation. Mm. That's an unexpected use case where it really came in handy. I guess, Marcel, one of the good use cases is actually the tutorial that's uh, for Kubernetes that's on the, the Q website itself. Is it worth you just chatting through that one? That's a, that's a good example of where Q sort of it is truly a configuration language. Yeah, so, so one of the, the things that that example shows, when I created GCL, I had this, uh, this other use case in mind, right? Like with these grammars, and there's lots of really like deep going automation you can do if you have a really declarative configuration language. So this was a little bit of promise with GCL as well, right? Um, and because it's you know, also declarative, uh, you do have some automation around it, but it, the real automation never materialized, right? You see that also with successors of GCL, they also promised the automation also never really materialized, or maybe people didn't know what I meant with you can automate, right? And one of the things in this Kubernetes demos is also where I show it like a tiny little bit of what you can do with Q, right? If you, if you have a model like Q, uh, in terms of automation. So for example, uh, one, of, one of the key things which sets it apart from other configuration uh, languages, so it's type system, right? It doesn't really separate types from values, so values are types. And basically, so you can use Q as a validation language, right? Like you can specify, you know, like constraints or, or like what do you expect your configuration to look like? And this in itself is already very useful, right? So very often if you try to put structure on something, you start with the validation rules, right? And you, you sort of narrow down, like, what is it, what I think it means, right? And you find errors, right? So this is very different. I, I, you don't even focus on templatizing at, at first, right? You try to focus the errors, like you validate what you have. 
until you get it right, right? Until you get it as many details, as many errors to catch. And then there is a, this is the first uh, in a you know, possible long series of automations. So the first one is, is called QTrim. It's like once I have this validation, I can say, well, you know, now start rewriting my configurations and eliminate all the fields that I can already derive from my validation. Right? So the validation rules that I write is at the same time also the templating. Right? So there's no inheritance in Q. It works uh, very differently, right? But uh, this is a very different way of eliminating boilerplate, if you will. Yeah, so if I had a JSON object yeah. then, and I needed this, to, you know, because of course in JSON there is no, there aren't really any rules. You can just, I could have a field with any type, uh, you know, it's not constrained. And there is that JSON mm -hmm. schema project, and there's a few other projects that aim to sort of address that. But so if I have a, a JSON object and it has a particular shape that just has to be I can use Q to describe yep. that shape and then validate it programmatically. Maybe I could mention, so what, what? one of the things that I tend to do, like one of the really nice uses for Q in a very kind of lightweight way is like, I'll, like I recently joined Influx, for example. Um, there's lots of configuration. Uh, there's, there's lots of configuration around and which you, you're like, oh, I'm unfamiliar with this. I don't know what this is. And there's no documentation or little documentation. And maybe there's some documentation, but it's pretty poor. You don't know what this is. And you could just take that JSON file or that YAML file and just write some Q alongside it and so, sort of start to refine your idea of what it is. And Q will tell you, oh, no, this is wrong. You're, oh, okay, I got that rule wrong. And you could just gradually refine it because of the nature. And it's, for me, the syntax is really natural. You know, like if you compared to something like JSON schema, which is, you know, written in, I'm not sure anyone would say that JSON schema is a natural way to specify schema for YAML, right? But if you write some Q, you can show it to someone that doesn't know Q and they'll be like, oh yeah, I understand that. It's, it's mm. kind of like a, like a, almost a pseudocode, except it's real code. Mm. So that's nice. Then you talk about being able to build the validation for some JSON, but presumably you can do that at scale as well. So if you've got lots of JSON data, you may be looking at just one document and you describe a rule, you could run it against all of it and it will tell you whether they all actually match that or if actually in some cases this is a number and not a string for some reason. <laughs> If these things have been manually edited, you tend to find places where there are inconsistencies, which yeah. people have never realized, you know, so, uh, you know, you have a big open API spec or something, you're like, okay, I'll write a rule against that. And it looks like, oh, here's an inconsistency. Okay, right. Um, here, you know, game on. Yeah. <laughs> Bugger raise that issue. One of Q's strengths to my mind is that there's Q the language, there's the Q command, much like there is the Go command that complements the Go language as well. And much like Go has got a standard library, Q has a standard library as well, which enables you to write tools in that use Q. And one of the great powers of the Q command itself, which is the sort of the parallel of the, the Go command and the Q APIs, is that you can almost seamlessly translate between these data formats as well, whether it be JSON, YAML, JSON schema. And so this is, again, a strength that I like is that as kind of Roger was saying, you can find yourself in a situation where you're working with some JSON or working with some YAML or working with some protobuf with just any different formats of either data or schema. And Q enables you to actually translate between those and effectively define conveniently a sort of a source of truth for, okay, here is my schema. I want this to be defined in JSON schema, for example, um, because actually there's a pre-existing schema there. So let me work with that. But instead, let me, I want to write some extra validation in Q over here. And the, the ability to combine those things is super powerful. So I end up just doing a lot of hacking using the Q command itself to, as Roger suggested, just validate data um, in the first instance against various sort of schema sources. Yeah, one uh, other use case that has gone quite big actually is, uh, so Istio, they're using uh, Q to generate their open API from their protobufs, right? So they're reading the protobufs converted to Q. And so there's a few reasons why you want to do this extra step from going from proto to Q to open API. So first of all, the mappings are not that trivial, right? I sometimes get a bug report for queues like, oh, this mapping is really weird, right? And it's like completely blew up from what protobuf is to, to open API. But that's actually because uh, the meaning is slightly different between the two, right? And, and Q captures that correctly. 
Um, so sometimes you just do get weird outputs, right? But that's basically because it's correct. The other thing is, uh, so this is where the composability comes in. So protobuf isn't very expressive, right? You just have basic types. And, you know, there are some extensions to protobufs where you can have expressions that validate a field, right? Like very much like JSON schema. But if you want to have like cross-type validation or more complicated validation, right? Like you, it's, it's hard to do. So even if you have such a pipeline, because Q is composable, you can throw in any additional kind of schema on top of it and it will just combine it in the end result. So unlike we are in, with inheritance, where you have to sort of uh, specify the layering, right? And specify in which order you, uh, you would apply. Um, and where also the semantics is always a kind of little bit shady, right? Like, okay, you, you've applied the order, but is that really what you mean, right? And every different ordering means something different and which one is the correct one. So that issue is completely gone in Q, right? Because there's no, uh, the order doesn't matter, basically. Mm. Which is amazing for a, for a programming language that where you can put things two things together in either order, any order, you know, it doesn't make a difference. It leads to a real sense of kind of, it feels reliable. It feels like, you know, this says this and it's true. You know, mm. no one can take this away from me. Sort of thing. Yeah, so it's interesting then this idea that it has a standard library because in my head, a validation thing I, I mean, regex strings make sense for sure. Uh, even number ranges to say this this has to be a number between these values. But what else? I mean, if it has a standard library for things like um, changing strings or modifying things, what does it look like? How do you actually tell it that? Well, so I think what Paul was referring to was more the, the libraries that you can uh, use to use Q in other applications. So for example, there is a, a loader very much like in Go, right? But there's also a workflow package, which allows you to basically have a, a task graph defined in Q, and then it automatically analyzes dependencies. And you can use that for data-driven uh, workflow definitions, for example. So, so it's, it's a, there are kind of a set of framework packages that you can use to build on top of Q and create whatever you want, right? In a sort of standardized way. But there is a standard uh, library but of course, that's very constrained by it having to be hermetic, right? Like we don't want things to be modified or... But yeah, there, there are useful things like you want to be able to operate with time types and, you know, other kinds of things, some, some network IP addresses and stuff like that. So in a little bit more convenient way than having to code it in Q itself. It's just a nice way of being able to sort of more, in a more expressive way, describe what constraints exist on the data that you're expecting or transforming that data that you have received in some way, shape or form, but as Marcel suggested in a hermetic way. So there's your regular strings package, for example, bytes package and others that allow you to not only manipulate or transform the data, excuse me, but express constraints hmm. in a slightly more expressive way. So what, for, for example, you might insist that something is lowercase. That's how, uh, is that an ex a real example? For example, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, ah, I see, that makes sense. Yeah, it's funny, I mean, you talk about the strings and the bytes packages and stuff. This sounds very like Go. Was this project inspired much by Go? Yeah, for various reasons. One of it was a bootstrapping reason, right? So the standard library, for example, was just uh, me analyzing the Go standard library. What is hermetic? What can I translate directly? And then just generate most of it automatically, right? That's how that started. So it was written in a few hours, basically. Uh, of course, then there's a lot of tweaking afterwards. But yeah, I mean, clearly, having been, I think it's almost 10 years I was on the Go team, right? So clearly, there's a, a Go inspiration, but not, not exclusively, right? Like the string model is much more based on Swift, for example. Mm. So what's that look like? What do you mean it's based on Swift? Well, so there's a lot of things where Go wouldn't work well for configuration language, like if it comes to... So in configuration, you often have this, this meta thing going on with strings where you have to substitute things in strings, but then you have to define strings where you have to substitute things in, right? So you have to you have multiple layers of escaping, if you will, and, and, and Go doesn't it just doesn't work very well, right, with the backtick. Uh, so it's actually a very hard problem, and I think Swift is the first language that got that right. And so I copied that model into Go. And there's some other, you know, string-like things that they did really well, like multi-line strings. Very simple, straightforward way of doing it. Very clear. Only one way to do it, right? So I'm looking at another configuration language here. But 
Roger knows. It's really a syntactic thing rather than a data model thing, I'd say. Yeah. And like it contrasts so nicely with YAML. It's one of the main reasons why if I'm reading a YAML file, I'm finding it hard to read, I'll convert it to Q and then I can actually read it because there aren't like eight different types of strings all with slightly different rules, which YAML, maybe 16, I don't know. It's got a ridiculous number of ways of quoting strings and no one knows them. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely that thing of having one way to do something really helps with readability, doesn't it? Because, of yeah. course, yeah, when you come to look at someone else's Q code, it's familiar already. Yeah. And that's a, that's a kind of go principle. Yeah, this, so this is a very good point. Like, um, so for scripting language, it's not so important, right? Like if you write a script and you do a one-off, you want to do something quickly, like being able to write things quickly, right, is more important than being able to read it back later and hopefully you'll throw it away. Um, so with a programming language, you don't want that. But with a configuration language, these requirements should be even stricter, right? Because very often it's not only not somebody else from your team, but it's a different team, like an SRE that has to look at it. And often in their not so good uh, circumstances, right? Where there's some emergency where you have to fix things. So readability is even more important and it's even more important to have uh, no complexity, right? Or less complexity. And this is exactly what is the problem with, for example, GCL, right? Like Guilty myself and many of the other configuration languages, right? They, you kind of need the complexity. That's why you go to a DSL in the first place, but then they, you know, you do want the readability. So you shouldn't have these complex uh, constructs, right? Like that, they really, uh, it goes too far, right? And it really hurts readability too much. Mm. One other thing I'd, I'd I'd kind of mention related to its relation, its uh, connection with Go is that it does really well is is that you've got QFUNT in the same way that you've got GoFUNT. I was going to ask that. And, and that's something that, 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 you know, like something like YAML, basically you can't do, right? You can't read it in, process it like an AST and write it out again because basically almost no one does that. So that means it's amenable to tooling in the same way that Go is amenable to tooling. And that's a huge deal, I think. So for anyone not familiar, and there probably aren't many of our listeners slash watchers that um, aren't familiar with GoFumpt, what, what does that do then for the Q code? So it means that you can, for example, if the language evolves and we want to change things in a backwardly compatible way, we can do that by reading in the code and automatically transforming it. And uh, like Marcel has been fantastic, like in the early days of the Go project, like I've been involved in Go since basically day one. And, and in the early days, the language was changing quite fast, but people kept on continuing to use the language because the core team was very good about maintaining backward compatibility, or rather, when they didn't maintain backward compatibility, they introduced a tool called GoFix, which would actually automatically change your Go programs to use the new features. And that was a huge deal and still is actually for Go. So, and I think that that's, that's a really big deal for for Q and for configuration languages, because it's not just the language itself. It's if you change your configuration language yourself, you want to transform it, well, then you can do that. And you can still keep comments, for example. Comments are really, really important. They're crucial. But, you know, if you've got JSON, for example, you can't have comments. If you've got YAML, well, if you transform your data, you lose the comments. But having the, the sort of like the GoFunct equivalent one formatting style, is critical um, from a readability perspective as well. So that's really the principal purpose, to my mind at least, of QFUMPT is the, the formatting side of things. I think Rogers just described the where QFUMPT goes to sort of like another level, providing those additional translation or we've deprecated this feature in the next version, so it will automatically rewrite your Q. And that has... I think Marcel would agree that has been one of the strongest bits of feedback that people have given is that there have been breaking changes because Q is not at V1 yet. And so in order to help people along that path, QFUMPT has been a lifesaver. You just literally run it like you would GoFUMPT across a number of files or directories or packages, as the case may be. And you end up having migrated, for want of a better phrase, to the new version of Q with, with zero pain. Yeah, it's funny. I heard somebody talking about GoFumpt and their view of it was it's just a kind of nice feature to have, almost like you have a format document in an IDE or something. But it is different to that. It's the readability thing, isn't it, again? Everyone having the same layout. 
And taking out any of that discussion around white space or where do we put braces or whatever. And the the stuff that Roger was talking about, the the fix, that sort of retrospective, you're almost like, it again sounds just like a nice to have, but... That's really how you build trust, isn't it? Like, and if if you could, that's the thing about Go, I think that made it so successful was you could kind of rely on it, especially once it hit version one. You could really rely on that, so so that you knew your code was it was pretty safe. It's not gonna they're not gonna just keep releasing new major versions, and you have to go back and rewrite things, or or you get stuck on a previous version. So yeah, I think that turns out to be way more important, really, than people might realize. So the, the queue, the language itself being amenable to tooling, i.e. writing tools that can work with queue, the language, is, again, critical for, for all the reasons that you just described. And it's kind of one of the, the main reasons that I really like queue is that I can imagine myself writing tools that work with queue in the same way that I write tools that work with Go, the language as well. And just to pick up on your point, Matt, about how this how powerful this can get, I think Russ Cox has actually just written um, a new refactoring tool for the Go language itself, which is kind of like taking Go to the next level of where people are making API changes, for example, and they need to help people migrate because they've made a breaking change or somewhat, uh, or for example, then that's the kind of thing that you want to be doing with Go. And that's absolutely the kind of thing that we want to be doing with Q as well. And that's, as Roger described, what QFunt has been fantastic with since day one. And, and basically automation, that was also a big motivator. So in a larger setting, like a lot of the code and also configuration, right? It's very often generated and or machine manipulated. It's, it's just a part of life, right? So this is, it's not only a nice to have, I would say it's critical, right? To have these features. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Equinix Metal, globally interconnected, fully automated bare metal. Equinix Metal gives you hardware at your fingertips with physical infrastructure at software speed. Accelerate your workloads with fully automated bare metal that's secure, powerful, and cost-effective. This is the promise of the cloud delivered on bare metal. Equinix Metal makes it easier than ever to take advantage of the unmatched global reach and connectivity ecosystem made possible by Equinix, which includes more than 220 data centers, across 63 metros, making interconnection easy. And they're obsessed with making bare metal even more awesome. Seriously, check out these features. 60-second deploys, hourly pricing, a customer success team that engages over Slack, x86, Intel, AMD, and ARM, single tenant, NVMe, and SSD storage, RESTful API, first-class DevOps integrations, Equinix Fabric integration, support for enterprise OSs and open-source Linux OSs, air-gapped installs without a public IP, no installed agent or keys, extensive open-source love and support, plus so much more. Visit info.equinixmetal.com slash changelog, get $500 in free credit to play with, plus a rad t-shirt. Again, info.equinixmetal.com slash changelog. Roger, I do have to ask you very quickly about you suggesting the error type in Go. What's that about? Because it used to be OS error, didn't it? It was a struct. That's right. It used to be OS error. And of course, like importing the OS package, you know, with all its baggage every time you wanted an error, this is not, not, not just not, not great. So there was a bit, there was a discussion uh, and they were thinking about different options. And there was quite a long thread in the Golang Nuts mailing list. They had actually decided that the, the, what they were going to do, they were going to make a new package, perhaps called errors, and it would be an error type. And every time you wanted the error type, you would import that package. And I was mm. like, no, no, I, I, like, that just doesn't seem right. It's such a low-level part. It, you, you shouldn't have to import something every time. And I just made a little suggestion in the thread saying, look, how about just predefining the error as an interface? Mm. Uh, in fact, at the time, I suggested it as, because at the time, the error... 
the standard the OS dot error had, had had a string method, not an error method. Right. Um, so I suggested that it would be type error with a string, and and they they changed that. But but basically that was that was my mm. suggestion. And it's funny how a little thing I probably didn't think about it very long, but that you know. And actually, that was one of the really fantastic demonstrations of GoFunt and GoFix because there were hundreds of thousands of lines of Go in the wild that was using OS.error, you know, importing OS whether they needed it or not. And you could just run GoFix and it would just change it just like that. And mm. it, was, it was like a kind of magic. That's a kind of that's a great discovery. It feels like that's a discovery, doesn't it? That rather than just a choice you could make because interfaces in Go, because they're duct typed or structural typing, then you don't need any, uh, you don't need to import anything to work with errors. So that's brilliant, mate. So thanks for that because <laughs> that's really helped us out. Um, there was a little bit of a discussion earlier today on Twitter, which is a website with, it's a microblogging website. And it was um, Jana Dogen and Carmen uh, Ando. And uh, they were kind of discussing whether you say Qlang or Q. I'm getting the sense that we say Q. So what's the what are the rules? When do we when do we use Qlang? And could you write could you describe this in Q? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, no, it's not Turing complete for one, but uh, no any <laughs> So um, I think it's very similar to, to Go, right? It's really Q, but if I search for it, I search Qlang because, you know, I just get better results. So there you go. Okay. No pun intended. <laughs> That's great. So Marcel, something you mentioned earlier, uh, which is baffled, baffling me still, you said values are types. Yeah. So could you elaborate a little bit on what that means and the implications of it? Um, yes. So if you look at Q, I try to visualize it now with my words, I guess. So if you look at JSON, you just have this string for the field colon value, which can be a string integer or another object. So in Q, it looks very similar. You can drop the quotes here and there, uh, not on the right hand side, but left hand side of the colon. And then on the right, instead of saying, for example, a string, you can say it is a string, right? So you can say instead of the value, you can specify it's a type. And syntactically, it looks the same, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not only syntactic, it's also semantic. Everything is ordered in a hierarchy. So a concrete string, like Matt, is an instance of the type string, right? But they're ordered in the same hierarchy. So I can say it must be greater or equal than, than M, right? Which then Matt is an instance of that too. So you have constraints and they're all ordered. And you can carry that forward and basically say all configurations are ordered like that. Right, uh, so you can define an ordering for all of them, um, and more specifically for the mathematically inclined, it's a lattice. So that means that for every two values or configurations, if you combine them, there's always a unique um, instance that's the greatest, uh, like instance of both of them. So that's where commutivity comes from, right? So that basically means you can combine in any order. It's a yeah mathematical construct, basically. Uh, in which all these values and types are defined. So it sounds a little bit complicated. It's really very simple. And one way to view Q, for example, is if you have two forms, right? Like uh, you can see Q as a form, like data as a, you know, is a form, if you will, and there's gaps in there. So you, you might still have to fill out some fields. Some of them might already be filled out. And let's say like two people have uh, partially filled out a form and you now need one to combine it, but it's a form about the same person. One person filled out the address, the other uh, person filled out the dependence or whatever. Now you're combining this form, but you're giving it to a third person. And it's just a matter of filling out wherever the gaps were by, left by the other. But now you see that the last name is different, for example, in both forms. Now, you know it's about the same person, so one of them must be wrong, right? Um, so what you do with inheritance, you say like, well, we'll pick the last one and that will be the name. Right. What Q will say is like, well, no, like one of them is wrong. There's no way for me to tell just based on this form, which one is wrong. Right. So I'm going to bail here. You're going to fix this. Right. You're going to tell me what's the right name. Mm. Right. And, th and this is basically how Q operates. And this is because you have this restriction, I can actually order everything nicely. And that's what it means that types are values. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does make some sense. There's a really good tutorial on the Q website, which is 
qlang.org, and that's C-U-E lang.org, that walk through the the basics of Q that introduce this concept of types being values really well. Um, and they also show and explain how the syntax is very JSON-like, which is unsurprising because it's a, a superset of JSON. And so that will help people to sort of orient themselves around how the, the schema part of Q, if you like, fits in with the JSON, uh, with, with the data part, and how the two of them combine matters you were saying earlier on in, in the way that JSON doesn't, where you've got JSON schema being a different thing altogether, really, to, to JSON the data itself. In Q, you've got this concept of that the schema, for want of a better word, and the data sitting alongside each other um, in the same file, potentially, um, where you're, the, the data, is, as Marcel was saying, is effectively just a more specific Mm. Uh, and concrete version of a field than the, the schema, which could just be the type, for example. Mm. So that is quite strange, isn't it? Are there, that, is that a new concept? Are there other examples of things that behave like that? Uh, well, so these, um, so really this comes from logic programming. Um, mm. So if you really think about like, like data log, prolog, you really have this... Um, you know, it's all about reasoning with with insufficient or partial data, right? Where you have gaps that you try to fill in by by trying to walk over this. So in in natural language processing, this this queue like thing, right? So it it works very much the same like that. You also have this lattice, this organization, and it was basically invented because it was. Um, so Prolog didn't really scale to address uh, dealing with grammars, right? Like not because it, it couldn't, but because it was too hard to understand and like order sort of still did kind of matter, right? And it was like complicated rules. And this was basically a, a, a pure data way of describing what needs to be matched, right? What needed to be matched. But it's, uh, so you don't really have integers and strings, right? It was more abstract in a way uh, than that. But you, you did have this idea that the structure is at the same time the type, right? So that this it really comes from there that you have that it's the same thing. Do people get that in intuitively, or does that take some learning? I think for computer scientists it might take some learning. I think for a normal person, let's say, hmm. it's it's easier actually. Hmm. So one way to think about it, if you think about inheritance, right? You have a, for example, a cat. And now I want to make it a dog, right? I say like, well, okay, so I, I'm gonna take the nose and make it wet and it doesn't meow, but it barks, right? But I'm gonna <laughs> modify this cat and create a subclass that's a dog, right? So for, to a computer scientist, it's a completely normal thing to do, right? And nobody would, would even blink at it. To a normal person, this is insane, right? Like you say, like, well, you don't organize it like this. You have an animal, right, or a mammal, and then you no, create No, but that's because a... they, think, they think you're really gonna do this in the lab. <laughs> Yeah, that's why. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is like this, right? Like the way I would say actually the way inheritance with inheritance, you can organize things is very unnatural often. Right. And, and so Q still has a hierarchy, but it's in hierarchy like normal people think about it. Right. Mm. Basically. It definitely took me some time to wrap my head around the way in which um, you need to sort of think in um, Q. But I think one of the things is that uh, I, I found is that once I sort of started getting, if you like, the concepts involved with Q um, and how to think in that slightly different way, as Marcel was saying, it actually just becomes a much more natural way to express, okay, this is the structure of the data that I'm expecting here, or these are the constraints on it. Um, and then the, the tooling that you have with Q as well, just it ends up becoming, it, it's for me, it's a critical part of my workflow using Q now. Whatever project I'm working on, it's not that I'm trying to use Q, I just find myself naturally using it because it's a very natural way of describing data or constraining data. That's a very good sign, isn't it? When, when you yep. actually just use it because it's working for you, you're not using it for the sake of it. I often end up just using it as like pseudocode almost. You know, I'm like, oh, what, what is this thing? Oh, I'll just, I'll just write it out as Q because it's, it just feels totally natural and it doesn't feel like it gets in the way at all. It just enables. Mm, that's great. We mentioned earlier that you can drop the quotes in the keys or in the field names or uh, something. But so what, what happens if you Q-fumped that? What's Q-fumped's opinion on quotes and things? That's fine. So labels are, uh, because it's more restricted, so left of the colon, if you're uh, doing a member 
name or whatever. <laughs> it's just uh, because it's so annoying to write the quotes there. It's just this little, you know, syntactic trick so that I don't need the quotes there. Except it's actually different in Q because if you don't put the quotes around the keys, it's actually an identifier. You can actually refer to it right. as a variable. Uh, and this is like a, you know, so you can say, you know, X colon five and without the quotes around the X and just like Jason, except later you can say Y colon X and then they're both X and Y are going to be exactly the same value always. Uh, mm. So that's, that, that's the difference. Hmm. That kind of reminds me of symbols in Ruby because you could build maps with symbols and strings as keys in Ruby. While you think about that, Matt, I'll just um, say that I think that's the two things that you talked about there, the, the dropping of the quotes and, as Roger was saying, this ability to reference different values. Yeah. Th this is, again, one of the things from, as a user of Q, i.e. somebody who's writing Q, one of the things that I, I really appreciate because you've got the, the tool authors and the system authors who are going to use Q because they want people to provide Q to configure their system or as input. But as a user of Q, someone who's writing Q, there are so many of these just amazing things that I have as part of the language. So Marcel was talking about um, string literals and the way they work, string interpolation, the ability to drop quotes, comments, this ability to do references, for example, the Q for all of these things as a user of Q, they're, they're just the things that I've become so used to in things like Go. I kind of need these things in my configuration language. And that's where Q from a user perspective is, is so much more powerful, I think, than things like JSON and YAML. Not to replace them, but just as a complement often to those things. I, I sometimes need that flexibility. So I'll write it in Q and then I'll export it to YAML, for example. Hmm. So the Q tools themselves then, what are they written in? Go, mostly. Mm. And will that always be the case? Well, it's, it's kind of a lot of work to, you know, like write all these tools again in, in something else, right? So I can imagine that at least the core language would be uh, either cross-compiled or potentially even rewritten, right, in another uh, other language. Uh, but but to rewrite the tools is uh, so especially if you're like with Go right like you're the, all the loading and like the modules all of this is very finicky right like it's a mm. uh, it's one way one thing to have a language specification mm. but then the tooling around it uh, is is quite tedious to to rewrite. Mm. I, I have to say I would hope that the core language was ported to other. The core Q language is ported to other languages because I think that it would have make a lot of sense, for example, to be able to use it on the browser, you know, the client side browser, for example, mm. um, or, or or from other languages because I think it can add a lot as, as something as part of some running system, as mm. well as used as a tool. There is an initial version of the um, Q playground that needs to be updated to the latest alpha version, which is sort of now the kind of like the latest version. Uh, that Q playground is compiled to WebAssembly in much the same way that some of the Go playgrounds are. The mm. actual Go playground itself has got a, a real back into it, but some of the, the Go playgrounds are compiled to WebAssembly and there is a Q version of that, um, mm. which at least demonstrates for now, not in the most efficient way that you can have browser-based um, interpretation of Q. Uh, as well as exporting to YAML, JSON, etc. Yeah, the real value is in its design, isn't it? So it almost doesn't really matter. But yeah, of course, this is a Go podcast and we all love Go as well. So that makes sense. How often do you think about internal tooling? I'm talking about the back office apps, the tool the customer service team uses to access your databases, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, and maybe even the tool that your data science team had together so they can provide custom ad spend insights. Literally every line of business relies upon internal tooling, but if I'm being honest, I don't know many engineers out there who enjoy building internal tools let alone getting them excited about maintaining or even supporting them. And this is where Retool comes in. 
Companies like DoorDash, Brex, Plaid, and even Amazon. They use Retool to build internal tooling super fast. Retool gives you a point, click, drag and drop interface that makes it super simple to build these types of interfaces in hours, not days. Retool connects to any database or API, for example, to pull data from Postgres, just write a SQL query and drag and drop a table onto the canvas. And if you wanna search across those fields, add a search input bar and update your query, save it, share it, it's too easy. Learn more and try it free at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. When do we think Q will be version one? And, you know, is there, are there big gaps? Are there still big kind of philosophical or conceptual problems to solve? When it comes to, to narrowing down the language, uh, it's, it's really talking about details right now, like, like really fine details, right? So I don't think, uh, so there's a change probably coming up in the number model uh, where we're going to say an integer is a subclass of a general number, whereas mm -hmm. now there is a distinction between float and integer. Right. And that doesn't always work out quite well. So the end result will be somewhere smack in the middle of go ints versus floats and go constants, let's say. Mm. You will hardly know the difference because people, there is already a number type, right? Pre-declared identifier which people typically use, float is discouraged. And if you use those, there's really, you won't know the difference between these two, two models. But uh, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's a little bit, if you use the, the standard library, you might get some, will be a little bit more convenient. Uh, so there's, there's some changes there. Can I be the first to suggest the error type, please? Well, there is a, it's, it's critical to uh, any lettuce. So there is, an, there is an error type. Although right now uh, people have... Uh, said that the way it's written that right now, it's a symbol and it looks kind of offensive to some people. So we're, we're, we're probably going to change it to a pre-declared <laughs> identifier uh, named error. Is it the poop emoji? It is not the poop emoji. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's, there you go. Maybe I could suggest the poop yeah, emoji the, the, for error type. Yeah. I can be the yeah. Roger Pepe of Q. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, But yeah, so there are yeah. some... Um, so performance is, is not great yet, and this is partly deliberate. It's been designed to be or, uh, order N, right? Like O-N. Uh, but uh, it's definitely not been implemented this way. So that's something that needs to be uh, done. And basically, the idea was to try out... Uh, it's written so that it, I can try out a lot of things fast. Uh, so deliberately, sometimes I right. added, um, you know, made it easier and, and made it slower, essentially. But uh, that would be one of the big next things to do. And um, yeah, so so it's you know error, the errors messages should they have become better already this uh, last iteration, but they need to become a lot better. And there are some uh, probably also a different model where an error message is not just a message, but really contains like um, a lot of context of where the error occurred, so that you can do further analysis on it, which is important for a configuration language. Mm. So these are the oh, it's really cool. Modules might be worth mentioning as uh, well. Yeah, that's not so much standing in the way for 1.0 of the language, but uh, we are, um, you know, wanted to adopt the, the, the MVS, right, of Go, um, which is actually perfect for dealing with configuration hermetically, right? So Go has this, uh, sorry, Q has this concept of a, a module very similar to Go. So for example, this is for, for Go users, this might be interesting to know. So there's this uh, thing called QGetGo, so you can point to any uh, Go package and it will then um, look at the Go types of this package and create queue definitions uh, for it, which you then can use in your queue code, right? So you don't have to like manually rewrite uh, mm. Go to... Well, it would also be yeah. a great way to learn queue, I guess, if you're familiar yeah, with Go, you could do that and that'd be a great way to learn. It's it. quite straightforward to do, actually. It works with Kubernetes as well. So you can just take the whole Kubernetes code base extract all the types. And so you immediately have mm. a typed Kubernetes uh, thing, right? Um, so another thing, uh, so I, in the Berlin uh, GopherCon, I gave a talk there. I gave a little bit of a demo there where, uh, and it's just still in my client, but just to show you what's possible. So there I go basically from a Go binary or Go code, basically, directly, just Go code, 
directly to an open API specification. So basically what it does, I use QGetGo to get the Go types. And then I separately, I gener uh, use SSA to analyze the Go code, identify the validation code, and extract uh, the constraints that these represent. Uh, and this is some, you know, barfed out queue that looks really ugly. Uh, but I can then run queue definition, queue def, to combine the nicely documented, um, you know, simple structs I just extracted before with this barfed out queue. And it spits out a very nicely documented open API definition without any further, you know, human input. So, so this is the kind of things you, you mm. could do with automation. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. This is really exciting. It feels like um, I think everyone's going to sort of just go and start playing now with this because it really like the possibilities seem uh, and, you know, the fact that it's solving those real problems that we all face every day probably I think is great. Um, and of, of course, isn't it open source as well? It is, yes. So if people want to contribute, what should they do? Well, yeah, there's a, a bunch of issues in qlang.org. Uh, so we have the, the one issue uh, repo for, for uh, it is, it's basically a big mono repo, right? So most of the development is there. And pick out an issue and see if you can, can fix it. Some of them are tagged, uh, tagged with a good first issue. Mm, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they really are, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Because, Actually, yeah. using, using Q itself and trying to come up with different ways that you think you might want to use Q and trying is actually a really good way, um, sort of, especially in these pre V1 days uh, of providing feedback. So yes, of course, is the, the contribution to the, to the Q code base itself, but actually using Q, that's where it was sort of, if there are any rough edges, just finding those now has been great. And so those people who are using Q for lots of different things. So one of my favorite use cases, for example, is actually using Q to configure my GitHub Actions. So instead of writing YAML, I actually write my GitHub Actions definitions in Q and in almost all of my repos now. And that validates against the, the schema that GitHub published, which is published in JSON schema, uh, as it happens. But that helped, you know, I think it was about six months ago, actually going through that process, helped uncover a few issues with the JSON schema interpretation uh, in the Q project. So trying out all these different ways in which Q can be used is a massive, massive help. So any sort of feedback or bugs or problems that people find or suggestions that people have along those ways is, is gonna be fantastically helpful too. Great, what a great way to contribute if you don't feel yeah. like you can get in and start working on the code base. Using it and reporting back is, is great. Well, it's that time, that great time for uh, Unpopular Opinions. So, who wants to kick us off? Who has an unpopular opinion? Well, um, let me start with one. I think I've alluded to it before already. But um, so, to me, basically, uh, uh, inheritance is the biggest source of complexity in configuration languages and a great evil that should be avoided, you know, which might sound sensible after everything I explained today, but <laughs> it does mean it eliminates most configuration languages as mm -hmm. a useful yeah. tool so that might yeah. be unpopular well i don't know if it's going to be unpopular to go people because one of the nice things about go is it, you can't build these complex type hierarchies and i i used to do c sharp and honestly i would build like cathedrals out of <laughs> type honestly beautiful things generics generics with various conditions ah oh. and then like the next day when i'd go to try and look at it as a no, no, I'll start again. And Go sort of doesn't have them. Um, and so you can't tie yourself in knots in that same way. But we'll see. We do test these unpopular opinions, Marcel. And if you don't manage to, we, we actually poll them on Twitter to find out if they are indeed unpopular. Ah, yeah. And if they're not, you have to come back on and, and think of another one. That's, yeah. that's the rule. Okay, I think that's a great one. Any others? Well, um this isn't directly related to Q, but I just say that I think that um, tests 
can be more of a liability than an asset. Oh, interesting. (laughs) They can be. In what way can they be? So I think a lot of people write tests that aren't very useful. You know, mm. they're, they're, you know, they're not telling you very much about how, how, how well the code works. And when your code changes, you have to change all the tests because maybe they're relying, they're using mocks, they're relying on internals. And actually the tests are worse than useless because right. they're, they're, not, they're not really telling you that the code works. And you have to make, you know, change maybe twice as much code or three times as much code as you mm. would if you didn't have any tests at all. So, mm. uh, and, and I think this is, you know, I, I'm a great believer in, trying to do more end-to-end, test as much as you can. And, and I've been doing this with Q quite a lot in terms of building up libraries of you know, corpuses, uh, and, and you, can, you can do that really nicely in Q. It's a great format for putting, you know, if you've got a test data directory, you have a load of stuff in Q, and you can maintain that really well, and the Go code just reads it as JSON, doesn't care what, that it's all specified in Q. Um, and that's... Maybe that's a, a tenuous connection, but but really, uh, you know, I've seen, I've spent too much time dealing with tests. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I, I, I'm with you, actually with you on this one, Roger, entirely. I used to build cathedrals out of tests, really complicated <laughs> things, beautiful structures. Yeah, I, I've learned kind of the hard way over time of, of just tests being... Um, and a bit of an albatross around your neck versus, you know, compared to like, it, when when you get them right, you definitely feel better about it. And um, and you're right, when they're too brittle, when they're too bound to your code, you almost end up just saying the same thing twice, which doesn't really have any value at all, does it? Um, so yeah, again, we're going to test this one, but I have a feeling that one's not going to be unpopular, but we'll see. Good one. Mr. Jolly. I don't have one. Unfortunately, my mine was going to be a controversial one that it should we should be all referring to this as Q as opposed to QLang, but we somewhat hijacked that earlier on, unfortunately. Ah, oh, sorry, mate. But, <laughs> but, but, but I gave an unpopular then. opinion a couple of weeks ago, so I'll, I'm happy to sit out. Okay, right. So, okay, that's quite that is quite unpopular to not give an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> And in the spirit of Q, that's quite meta as well. You sort of, you know, I trimmed um, my unpopular opinion. Yeah, <laughs> that's a Q joke, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't get it yet, but I'm going to learn Q, and then I'm going to come back and listen. I'm going to be, I'm going to be loving that. Okay, well, uh, that is all the time we have for today. But thank you, uh, gentlemen, so much for um, coming on and and telling us about this. It's definitely got me excited about Q. I can already think of a few different use cases where it really, I think, is perfect. So I'll be one of those contributors trying things out. All that leaves me now is to say, you boy, down there, listen, is that prize turkey still in the window? Right, go and get it then, and I'll give you... Toppence. I tell you, for these Victorian orphans, what are we going to do with them, Roger? <laughs> Pop them in the workhouse, what you were saying earlier, isn't it? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Don't worry, this get edited out. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. Marcel, Paul, Roger, it's a pleasure. And thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. If this is your first time listening to GoTime, subscribe now at GoTime.fm or search for GoTime in your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button there. You'll find us. And hey, while you're there, leave us a five-star review. We'd appreciate that. This episode was hosted by Matt Ryer. It was produced by Jared Santo with music by the Beat Freak, Breakmaster Cylinder. GoTime is brought to you by our awesome sponsors. Special thanks to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. On the next episode, panelists Angelica, Chris, John, and Johnny discuss why writing is an important discipline for software developers. Stay tuned for that one. It's hitting your podcast feed next week.